So, Father, as we um, look through Psalm 139 today, please be with us. Please allow your spirit to be at work both in me and in every single one of us, uh, that we might listen to your words and be transformed by your words into the image of your Son. Amen. Oh, can't you see? You belong to me. How my poor heart aches with every step you take. Every move you make... I'll be watching you. Now this song, Every Breath You Take by the Police, has been called one of the greatest love songs ever written. People hear this song and they empathize with this heartbroken lover this song is about. See, for many, this song's lyrics, it conjures up compassionate, sentimental responses. But to the writer of the song, Sting, he finds this response a little bit disconcerting. Because this song wasn't meant to be as warm and fuzzy as people thought it was. This song was meant to be a little bit creepy. Yes, it is a love song, but it's a love song from the perspective of someone who goes too far in his obsession over his lover. It's a song about a stalker. But often many have misunderstood this song, not realizing that it's supposed to be a little bit unsettling. And actually, it's the same case with Psalm 139. Because many people, they read Psalm 139 and they think it's a nice, warm, fuzzy psalm. Maybe you might have thought so too as we read it this morning. But this psalm, it too is also meant to be just a little bit unsettling for those of us who read it and for those of us who sing it together. So why don't we have a look at the psalm then? So this psalm written by David or about David, it begins with a very simple statement. You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. And how well does God know David? Look at verse 2 to 4 with me. Whether David is at rest, sitting, lying down, or active, rising, going out. Whether David is quietly thinking or even before a single word has been spoken. God knows it all. But not just know as in having some sort of awareness of it. This is an intimate knowledge. God perceives my thoughts. He understands them through and through. God discerns all our actions. He evaluates and he measures our actions. Every little aspect of our lives. It's just like a loving husband knowing his wife. All her habits, all her quirks, all her passions and fears because he has paid close attention to her. He has studied her. This is the kind of knowledge that God possesses of David and of every single one of us. So you might say God is omniscient. He is all-knowing with regards to our lives. But this understanding, this intimacy, isn't purely theoretical either. See verse 5? You hem me in before, behind and before you lay your hand upon me. God's intimacy and knowledge, it means protection for David. Being hemmed in might be like being surrounded by shields in all directions. God's hand is laid upon him. He is safely within God's care. And David continues, not only does God know everything there is to know about him, God is always there no matter where David goes. So from verses 7 to 10, if David goes up, if he goes down, God is there. 
If David heads towards the dawn, that is the east, God is there. And if he heads to the sea, for Israel, that meant the west, you guessed it, God is also there. You might as well add north and south to that list as well. There is no place on earth that David could go where, God, where he can escape from God's presence. But it's not even geographical either. It's not just geographical and physical. The depths, or in other translations, Sheol in the Old Testament is the name of the realm where all the dead end up. A place which the Old Testament writers thought consisted of a complete lack of anything. No knowledge, no remembrance, no praising of God. But David describes God's presence as being so pervasive that even death itself could not separate David from God's presence. And so what is God's presence like? Verse 10, God's hand will guide him. His right hand will hold on tight to him. Again, safely within God's strong grasp, wherever he might be. And he continues, verse 11 to 12, If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Even the darkness, places where people might think would be the perfect hiding places, even there David cannot hide from God. Even if he wanted to escape from God, he couldn't. I mean, before light even existed, God was there. God created light out of nothing. So, of course, the absence of light couldn't stop God from finding David. God will always be there, guiding and holding on to him. And so you might say, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere to David and to us. And in verse 13, David gives a reason for the first half of the psalm. Why can he say that God knows him and is with him in all aspects of his life? Well, verse 13 to 16, David gives us his answer. And the the reason is that God is the one who made him. So have a look at uh, this process with me. Verse 13, David is formed, knitted together. Verse 15, made in secret, intricately woven. Verse 16, he saw my unformed body. This isn't an image of a factory churning out one product amongst thousands in a thoughtless and mechanical process. This isn't a picture of a random process. It's not pure coincidence that this gene from dad and that gene from mom came together by accident. This is a picture of God carefully using the finest, most delicate means to put every fiber of your body in exactly the right place. God sculpted knitted together every single muscle, bone, and organ. Intentional, purposeful, hands-on. And what's more, this process that David describes, only God can claim credit to it. The knitting and the sculpting is all done, verse 13, in the mother's womb. It's, verse 15, made in secret, woven in the depths of the earth, verse 16. Your eyes saw my unformed body. God works miraculously within each womb before even the mother is aware that this is all happening. And so David concludes, God's complete control, his complete involvement in creating David in this way, 
it shows that God's control must extend to all aspects of his life. God so knew how David's life, and so God knew how David's life would pan out. Every event written in his book, verse 16, long before they happen. And so you might say then that God is omnipotent. He is all-powerful in David's life and ours too. Now at this point, if we were to boil down the first 18 verses of this psalm into theological statements, uh, you could easily do that, couldn't you? Verse 1 to 6, God is omniscient. Verses 7 to 12, God is omnipresent. And verse 13 to 18, God is omnipotent. Now, wouldn't that make the psalm easier to remember? But what is wrong? What do we miss out if we simply state that these three truths is a summary of Psalm 139, 1 to 18? What do we miss? Well, first, did you notice how David himself responds to his own descriptions about God? So listen to David's reflections here. Verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. Verse 17 to 18, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you. See, this knowledge, it's much too profound, too deep to be grasped by the simple human mind. It's like theologians when they're trying to nut out the Trinity. They're trying to define all the detailed mechanics of God's nature. At some point, they must all throw up their hands in the air and say, this knowledge is too much. I can, I can only say so much, but I can't go any further. It's, it's beyond me. It doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense, but that God's nature, his greatness, his incredible intimate knowledge of us through and through, it's simply too profound for us to grasp. See, David isn't trying to neatly fit God into a box so that he can describe every single aspect about God. His reflections of God bring him to wonder. His reflections bring him to his knees in humility before his own maker. And a second thing, a second thing that you would miss if you reduce Psalm 139 to these theological truths is that these facts about God They're deeply personal to David. Just look at the number of times he addresses God personally and how he relates it to himself. Verse 1, you have searched me, Lord. You know me. Verse 2, you know when I sit. Verse 3, you discern my going out, and so on and so forth. In the second stanza, where can I go? You are there. You are there. You are there. In the third stanza, you created my inmost being. And so can you see, theology, knowledge about God, isn't meant to be abstract. It isn't about simply filling our brains up with information. But rather, it ought to be building up our relationship with God to help us realize what God is doing in our lives. A God who isn't far off out there, but a God who desires us to love him and worship him with all our heart. Knowledge of God is meant to help us in our relationship with God by teaching us how to talk and to relate to God. And so we can come to God knowing he's already aware of all our thoughts long before. There's no need to hide anything from God. Acknowledging that there's no escape from God. He's always there with us. 
giving up control to God, confessing that he is in, in control of every single aspect of our lives. This is knowledge that humbles us before the infinite God of the universe who knows us better than we know ourselves. And so what about us? How has what we've been learning about God grown our intimacy with him? As we sit here Sunday after Sunday, as we attend Bible studies each week, have we allowed the teaching about God to draw us closer to Christ? Or does that knowledge sit neatly compartmentalized in our heads? Separate it from our daily lives as we head back to work or school on Monday again. Filed away, only to be accessed when the right Bible study question comes up. I think this is a scary question to ask. Because I know I find it so easy, as I learn about God and as I read his word, to simply respond by saying, wow, that's amazing, God is amazing, that's so cool. But I just leave it at that. Now, don't get me wrong, there's nothing wrong with being amazed by God's truths. I mean, David here, he's he's marveling at God over and over again, isn't he? But David goes far beyond that, doesn't he? He makes it personal. He builds a living relationship with his maker, with his God. Now, Now, this psalm could easily end here. David has described in personal detail what God is like, all-knowing, everywhere, all-powerful. What a powerful and faithful declaration of who God is. And really, these few verses are what this psalm is really popular for, isn't it? But the thing is, the psalm doesn't end here. And it moves in a way that might surprise us. Verse 19. If only you, God, would slay the wicked... Away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. Verse 21. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. That was a sudden jump, wasn't it? How can David so quickly go from praising God to now being filled with malicious intent? I mean, how can David, a man of God, be asking for such a violent and cruel end to his enemies? Now, unfortunately, we don't have too much time to go into detail about how these types of hostile prayers work as scripture. But we can make one very important observation here. And that is, those who David hates, they're first and foremost God's enemies. They're God's enemies. They're not people that David has a grudge against. They're wicked, bloodthirsty, violent men themselves. But more than that, they openly bring dishonor to God's name. They speak of God with evil intent, verse 20. They misuse his name. They're in open rebellion against God, verse 21. See, David's hatred of these people has nothing to do with himself. But his intense anger is all about how God, God's name, has been misused. God has been offended. And can you see David's concern for God's name here? Especially against the truths of verse 1 to 18. This almighty, ever-present, all-knowing God, they dare to dishonor you. They dare to speak evil of you. God, get them out of my sight. Get them out of your sight. Remove all opposition to you, O God. Isn't this just another way of praying your kingdom come? May your reign be so obvious, so evident, so powerful, 
that none might dare to openly oppose you again. Now this might already give us an inkling that this psalm isn't entirely warm and fuzzy. But there's another aspect of the psalm which should leave us a little bit unsettled. Particularly as we went through the first 16 verses. Did you find anything a little bit disturbing as we read the psalm? Because these attributes about God's power and knowledge, these truths are actually meant to be a little bit ambiguous. I mean, I describe God's infinite power as something which is inherently fantastic and good news for us. But the question is, is it really so great? You may have heard about how China has been trying to roll out uh, a new social credit score. Uh, Every citizen gets a score which goes up and down depending on how you behave, how good of a citizen you are. And see, all this is done by placing surveillance cameras in every single public place imaginable. So everything you do, recorded. All your searches and posts online and on social media is tracked. So you help someone cross the road, your score goes up. You drop rubbish on the road, your score goes down. And this score determines what kind of privileges you get access to or lose out on. Now here's the question for us. Is this system inherently good or bad for the citizens of China? Would you want to live under this system where you cannot escape from the government's watchful eye, where every aspect of your life is known to them? Well, it depends, doesn't it? See, if you love the Chinese government, if you lived well-behaved lives, if you publicly praise China's rulers, then you'll reap the benefits, access to the best schools, health care, discounts. But if you step out of line, then this system is absolutely bad news for you. Recently, a journalist who spoke out against government corruption, his social score was slashed so low that he couldn't even leave his city because he couldn't catch public transport. See, whether your ruler's immense power is good news or bad news, it kind of depends on where you stand with the ruler, doesn't it? And so this is similar to what we find here in Psalm 139. Is God knowing everything there is to know about us a good thing or a bad thing? Is the fact that God is everywhere, that there is no place that we can hide from God, is that... Is the fact that God is completely in control of my beginning and my destiny, is that comforting or is that scary? Well, it depends on which side you're on. Have a look at how David makes Psalm 139 ambiguous with me. Verse 5, you hem me in before and behind. This is actually a neutral word. Yes, it can mean to be surrounded uh, for protection like a wall, but it can also mean being encircled by your enemies, being trapped by God. Verse 5, you lay your hand upon me. Verse 10, your right hand holds me fast or, or seizes me. This again can be both a hand of assurance and comfort, but can also be one of placing one's hand for judgment and punishment, holding fast, seizing someone in anger because of their rebellion. In verse 7, David surprisingly uses the word flee. Where can I flee from your presence? It's a word that's only used to describe escape from danger or enemies. See, all these words scattered throughout introduce this unsettling ambiguity. David says, God's infinite power isn't automatically good news. Yes, God's power can be comforting and can bring security. 
but it could also bring fear and dread if we're not on his side. Now, please hear me very carefully. I'm not saying that our all-powerful God is like a control-obsessed human government. Uh, God is just. God is righteous. God is loving and he's full of compassion. But it warns us. Even as we agree with these theological statements about God, he is all-knowing, everywhere, powerful, even that God is righteous and loving, we can agree with all these statements, but that doesn't mean that we're automatically in a right relationship with him. Knowing about God doesn't make us friends with God. Just like knowing the stats of your favorite sports star doesn't make him or her your personal friend. And so let's hear out how this psalm ends. After expressing the ambiguity about God's attributes, after his great plea for God to remove God's enemies, David, he turns his prayer upon himself. Verse 23 to 24. Search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. See, if you thought David's plea to remove God's enemy was a little bit self-righteous, well, this blows that out of the water, doesn't it? Search me, God. Test me. Know me. See if there is anything in me that might be offensive to you. David echoes the start of the psalm. He asks God who has searched him and known him, search me again, test me again, reveal to me my true self. So that if I am sinning, if if I am exhibiting anything that I have described about your enemies, then God, put me on the right path again. Lead me in the way everlasting. How does David deal with the ambiguity of God's awesome nature? David becomes self-reflective. He doesn't rule out the possibility that he might possess within himself things which are offensive to God. And so he asks God to shape him in line with being in a right relationship with him. That God might mold him so that he might be more and more on the right side of his infinite creator. David humbles himself before God. Now the thing is, if we're honest with ourselves, we know how scary it is for someone to know us so completely as the psalm describes, don't we? Every dark thought that we've had about those who we disagree with, the moments where we've overstepped the boundary in our anger and frustration, what we've done in secret that we think nobody knows about. If we're honest, knowing that God is all-knowing, all-powerful, as we've just heard, that should terrify us. How can any of us dare to face God? And so why isn't the Bible a horror story? Why isn't the Christian faith controlled by fear? It's a a gospel, isn't it? Because God sent his son into the world to save us from this very terrifying reality. Because all of our sins, all of our rebellion against God was taken upon his shoulders and placed upon Jesus as he hung there on the cross. In fact, Christ experienced all the negatives of Psalm 139. He knew and he felt what it was like to be God's enemy, to be on the wrong side of God's infinite power. He went through that so that we might be assured of ever facing the positives of God's nature. 
so that the all-knowing, all-seeing, all-powerful God, when he looks at us, he no longer sees our filth, our selfishness, our unloving deeds, but rather God sees the righteousness of Christ. Isn't that wonderful? This psalm tells us we can't afford to take God for granted, though. God's grace for granted. Knowledge about God, knowledge about Jesus dying on the cross for us even, it demands a response, a personal response. Because Jesus' death on the cross is only good news if we choose to follow him. And so if you're here today and you haven't yet made the decision to follow Jesus, then you need to make up your mind. Which side of this powerful God do you want to be on? And I hope that the answer is obvious, especially since the cost has already been paid. Jesus is simply waiting for you to accept this free gift. But for those of us who have chosen to follow Christ, let me encourage you not to let this be a once-off decision, left behind as a distant memory. Because just like David, we ought to continually make this personal response to follow God, don't we? To live God's way. Because remember, we haven't been saved just to keep on living our lives any way we want, to kick up our feet, uh, waiting for heaven to come around. No, we've been saved into a loving relationship with the Almighty God, the Holy God. And so as we meditate on God's truths, Uh, as we meditate on the cross on which we have been saved, let us draw near to God all the more, bringing our thanks to him, living our lives to please God every day. And how else can we imitate David's response to God? Keep asking God to search us, to reveal in us any way that might be offensive to God. It is pleading with God that he will transform transform us and make us holy. Let me ask you guys, is this something that you've prayed for? That God, through his intimate knowledge of us, might show us our hidden faults that even we are not aware of. That we might repent of them and and continue to grow in holiness. Now, I can remember a couple of times where I've prayed that God might reveal to me my sin. And sometime later, of course, indeed, uh, I get confronted with particular sins, be it uh, going to Bible college and realizing that, that grades become an idol for me. Uh, when I realize that I haven't been loving my wife and my kids as I ought to be. And when that's confronting, when I'm confronted with that, it's, it was crushing to my soul. This sense of guilt and shame that I felt, I was totally depressed. I'm meant to be studying to, be, to, to become a, a minister, and, and yet I'm doing all these things. But then I remembered, I did ask God to reveal to me my sin that I didn't know, right? Isn't that the point of asking so that we might be made aware of this, so that we could repent of those and, and keep growing in holiness? It's a very hard thing to pray for. But after reading one Psalm, Psalm 139, I don't think we can afford not to pray like this. So can I encourage you all to pray like this? That because you now live completely free from facing God's judgment, because you desire to please the God who saved you, that this desire would make you long for God to search you through and through and show you what you need to repent of. Christ has sacrificed himself on the cross for us to take away our sin and and to bring us new life. We need to make 
a response to this truth, to commit ourselves to him, to ask that God might lead us in the way everlasting. Let us pray. Our Father God, we, we thank you so much for this great declaration of, of who you are, the, the, the greatness, the, infi- the infinite power that, can, that this psalm is merely touching the surface on. But Father, we thank you even more that this psalm reminds us we need to respond to these truths. Knowing about you uh, means that we, we need to uh, be on the right side of your great power. And we thank you so much that through Jesus, we can all be on the right side of your great power if we accept his free gift. And so, Lord, may, may this be a continual response that we make day in, day out, every single day of the week. And for those of us who might not uh, be in, in that situation yet, who might not have accepted Jesus yet, Father, we pray that you will be at work uh, and encourage us all to make that decision. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.